0: the founder's foyer with me, Ashwarya. This foyer is full of conversation. The space where creators, founders, and builders look for all the support and projects to grow their ideas into the products. There's so much in parallel with tech and art. For instance, there's innovation that starts in all small steps, iteratively leading up to total radical exploration. A lot of people today blend creative arts together with principles grounded in ethics and emerging tech. To be at the intersection of all of this creativity and build versatile careers across entertainment media, business, law, only teaches us that anything is just a step away from learning afresh. I've got just the person with me here who went deeper into a lot of those subjects and who's with us here today to exchange some of her thoughts.
1: Before we go into the episode, let's hear it from our first sponsor. Hilton Public Fellowship is a wetted community and a 6 week cohort based course designed by KP to help ambitious founders and creators accelerate their build in public journey together with strong accountability supportive community and hands-on mentorship from KP himself the fellowship is a global melting pot of members from world class accelerators like Y Combinator and OnDeck bootstrap founders with over 20k dollars monthly revenue professionals from companies like Google and Goldman Sachs all committed to launching or growing their projects in public. You'll be surrounded by fellows who've launched a podcast, started and exited multiple companies, built a newsletter or Twitter audience of hundreds of thousands of people online, and they'll have your back just as you share your journey and build in public fearlessly. I was a part of the second cohort, and I absolutely loved it. I got to meet so many creators. I got to build alongside with them and share my journey go through fireside charts taking lessons from KP and also other creators from across the world who shipped amazing stuff. I highly recommend it. And there are scholarships as well. The next cohort kicks off on August 7th but only has limited seats. So apply ASAP at buildandpublicfellowship.com.
0: Hing Hingwen has mastered technology and storytelling, formerly leading emerging AI tech at Intel. She is a New York Times best selling author. She's authored about three books, and she's a media producer and a filmmaker as well. She writes and speaks about tech, AI ethics, women in leadership, and transforming culture. Hi, Abigail. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun <laughs> just chatting in the green rooms again.
0: Absolutely. You know it's Like just researching about your background gave me like so many points. And when I was just thinking about okay, what are the different topics I should be talking today, I'm like it was like a kid in the candy store. I'm like I wanted to talk about this, I wanted wanted to talk about this, and then like there are so many topics. So uh, let's let's start, and I, I can't wait to get you all through those couple of things. But yeah, awesome. So from graduating as a lawyer and working for Senate to right now being into media and writing, and also having chapters of working with tech and AI. Look at Mac, what are some moments that you can recollect throughout right you here?
2: Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a really great question. I think people often ask me, from, you know, similar kinds of questions because I've had, had such a diverse career. And I've actually you now worked in all every major, kind of the big, the big part of industry. So, and it was government and finance, tech, okay. yeah, now, and, you know, publishing and Hollywood. But I would say there, there are definitely consistent themes that have brought me to this point. One is, I think, just the theme of social justice. So my family is from the Philippines and Indonesia. I grew up in Ohio, but I would go back to visit the Philippines when I was a child. And I remember just, you know, really being struck by the big disparity between, you know, that world and the world that I was living in in Ohio. Like, you know, I, in the Philippines, I wouldn't see, I remember the exchange, right, just being like really... Kind of shopping, yeah, go and get these pretzels that were like thirty cents. That okay. I think they're Auntie Annie's pretzels that I can get for like two dollars in Ohio. And you know, I, I remember seeing slums as a child and was being really shocked, like to see these these holding corrugated metal and let all of these kids that were my age running around barefoot. And but I kind of and I don't see my family there, so I think I was always I grew up with this innate sense of what well, the world is really disparately divided between the halves. So that was something that stayed with me throughout my, my years, through school, through Harvard, um, it's what led me to law school. It's why I went into government originally, because I wanted to, to talk about things like issues and these issues of injustice and inequality. So I think for a long time, I was trying to figure the right view for that. And so there was government, there was law. I actually remember on a research trip to, to China that I did. In college i was struck how businesses actually reach people in some mm-hmm. ways that with the government data. so i i did on a, a research trip in china when i was in a student at harvard and i visited a factory that made paper products they were yeah. making paper products for takeout actually yeah. and i remember seeing the factory workers like how they you know how they lived how they worked how they eat their lunches and being struck by like you know businesses actually reach people more intimately the place that they were, which is people who are more internet, intimately than government laws and policies that are being created out in Washington, DC or Beijing. Um, so I think that's kind of partly what that started the path that they ended up taking from, which is financial services and venture mm-hmm. capital, or you the know, startup companies. Like, oh, yeah, business has a role to play in social justice. And so, you know, through those years, I would think about how do we increase access, democratize access to capital? Like a lot of, you know, women and minorities didn't come to capital historically, and it's still true today, actually. And so I think that being kind of you know, a lot, even in my writing. So now, like, when, like, I have published two novels, the third is coming in November. And I have, I have many more novels and many projects and many projects and more. Books. And even all my really works, like, so there is an aspect of, of social justice and diversity of just kind of expanding our understanding of who people are. There's mm-hmm. stereo diversity, there's cultural diversity, there's socioeconomic diversity. And I think it's interesting that just try to to bring to the world the showcase.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know what's the best thing when you explain to me, I even though for somebody who's hearing it for the first time to connect love, business, art, even though these might look like you know different different facets where you get here, once you explain this, a lot of common thread that could come through, which is having that sort of an axis and sort of equality. when it comes to both you know, uh, whether it's tech or whether it's it's capital, just having that sort of equal standards for everyone and to be able to connect and pursue what, what's capable in each person's capacity. I think those two are what I hear when you explain to me about your story. So it's amazing that we were able to make that impact in each of the spaces that you took in. So it, it's super good to dig deeper into different aspects. So uh, thank you so much for sharing that, me. Awesome. So I think let's go into the writing pursuit of yours because we were just talking about how you had you know three books and uh, I for so a remember, it's also like a strong decision that you took to go into writing while you were heading a team back at Intel and working with emerging tech, which currently you know people talk a lot about AI and I think you've been involved in that space for quite a bit So how did you trade with this sort of difficult choices? Like how did you know that? Wait, this was the moment that I had to go full in or this this is when I had to put my energy in. So could you elaborate on those patterns and those directions that you had to deal with when you pursued writing alongside your tech career?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would say that there's kind of three big choices that I had made in my career. The first one is not to become a law mm-hmm. professor. So that was 16 years ago. And I graduated from law school. I did everything to get mm-hmm. onto the market to be a law professor. Columbia was the executive editor, I wrote an art this, you know, article that won a national award, and I was a clerk on the DC circuit for the appeal, so and was an yeah. activist not the law firm, so the idea is that you go to a for a couple years, and then you apply, you write an article and apply to Apple tea positions, and I just couldn't bring myself to write that, that next article. I thought like five people would read it, it wouldn't, you know, but I had this idea for the fancy novels sitting around in my head. And my husband is super supportive. You know, you're so excited about this book. Well, I mean, just try it. And I was like, well, so how do you just try it? Right? You just try writing a novel. And I tried it and it just came pouring out of me. Full novel. It was like 60,000 words. I fantasy and boy, boy, and portal. And, you know, in retrospect, it was, there's a lot. lot of things that I out. And although there is an element, that's actually super exciting that I still have to explore that novel in the works. You know, my agent actually wants it. But. That was how I kind of caught my teeth. I didn't even know it was creative, but that was great.
0: Mm.
2: But it took me many years to break in. It was before I was crazy with Jason and Hamilton, and the world going to their stories. Um, mm. So I was working a lot in my, like, kind of my, my my regular career as a lawyer, finance, venture capital, emerging technologies. But at the same time, I was writing at night. 9 to 12 every night, I ended up doing an MFA program, which is a distance learning program at the Bot Fortune Fine Arts that I was like 25 hours a week. It was all my weekend. I spent all my holidays going to campus to like the two residencies twice a year. And I just kept growing. I kept writing. I wrote five novels on the way to the moment of Taipei, which is my first novel to publish. And then I had six novels that, as you know, the book became film, which is called Love into Taipei. Mm. It's coming out at this summer. And that two years ago, I decided to leave my corporate job. And that was actually the third the point. I skipped over the middle. i don't go back to that side. But I did meet my corporate job uh, to pursue the creative world full time. And I haven't really looked back since. it. But I will say along the way, and I'll go back to like the second, the moment, I found that it was hard to jumble, both. it was hard to jumble writing, raising young children, and the corporate life. I was working at you know, these big law firms that you work, mm. at, you work 100 hours a week. And still not be done right so yes. i did make the hard choice hmm. to take a smaller legal job i went in house at the time like and at the time it felt like a really big decision like everyone's like oh, oh you'll yeah. never be able to practice big law again like all the big decisions are done that law firm. and i went and so now my retiring i put it i'm gonna be great because i ended up being in such to business which actually is better still for it i got so many technologies and went in costume the venture capital equal position which actually me, yeah. you know which was which put me squarely into like the heart of what Silicon Valley does and then I got to see all these cool just grow and incubate and catch a risk takers that you know were failures just to step along the way and all that was encouraging for me in my own writing yeah. journey so that choice to put that take a step back from the big big old career, um, so I could basically do more writing and kind of open up mm-hmm. capacity I think was also kind of what what gave me the space yeah. to be where I am today, but you know, that was a hard choice, and it definitely came with some uh, on my legal, right? to my legal career that I, I had to struggle with for, for several years.
0: Yeah, and it's like it's very important to also recognize what are you leaning towards. So, I've had Christina Wallace, who's a professor at Harvard, talk to me about portfolio careers and this concept where. What you do eventually leads you into multiple pursuits of interest and also very important to cater to those interests and try and see what leads you into which direction. And I think in, in case, Abigail, it, that's, that's exactly what I hear because um, you started with something like, let's say, law and then that eventually led you into pursuing tech and you had your whole uh, good ride with the tech carrier space. And also you didn't want to let go of something that you had innate talents for, which is to, to, to start writing. And I'm so glad that you had, um, you know, folks encouraging you in terms of like, I'm not willing to give up on your voice, but sort of like figure out what's what's the voice that's coming out of you and how, how can this be molded and shaped further to uh, other extent. So, and I, I loved your, uh, kind of the relatability you brought in with venture capital and writing, because I think a lot of times we have founders and and people that we have seen in front of our lines, who sort of like and uh, willingly give up a lot of things to pursue their interests because that gives them joy. And I think um, it's so evident that in case, writing gives you joy. And I'm and, and super happy to see writing, not just like bandwidth writing, but like going beyond filmmaking and uh, a lot of other things which we'll discuss in the next couple of minutes. But yeah, wonderful. Cool. So now we're, we were just talking about you know, writing and, and what made you enter into this phase and how hard it was to uh, juggle a lot of your uh, decisions and, and your, um, you know, uh, choices to go with, with the writing field. So we talk a lot about community because with tech, I think today it's you take a peer role, when you take a founder's role, there's always a community that you can fall back to. There's always a set of people that you can go and sort of have them as a personal board of directors and tell them, hey, I have these questions. I just want to bounce it off with you and see what your thoughts are. So uh, for somebody who's been from the tech space and entering into a totally different career like media, how is the kinship in the media space? Because this could be like very helpful for a lot of people who are willing to break into a media career. And, you know, your, your answers and how did you find your inner critic circle who gave you that inspiration? I think that could be a great story to hear about. Yeah. I would say it was like multiple
2: communities that I've really drawn support from over the years. My critique partners I really credit with, like, how did I get to this place? So my critique partners I found through a variety of ways. I met IW at Gordino, and through SCBW Army met and she was a med- medical student resident at Stanford. And I was, I think I was perhaps seeing a lot of big career. I mean, you know, we were similar, and so we both had these very time-consuming careers, but we also were writing in adult novels. So we began exchanging work. We would meet like once a week, exchange 15 pages at a time and that grew over time. Mm-hmm. So something that kind came of came out that Sonia Mukherjee is another one who joined us soon after that. I still trade works with. And then I met somebody here who actually just won the National Book Award and Prince and a whole bunch of other honors this past year. She wrote the Ember and the Ashes series and then her most recent book All My Rage, the big, the big award winner. So, you know, but this is before she's even published and you know, we were like, she has taught me so much about writing. Um, uh, Stacey Lee, who wrote for Downstairs Girl. It's a recent one who's been a club pick. And Kelly Will Gilbert, whose new book just came out this week, actually. And Stephanie Garber, who wrote the Caravan series. And I just I love that series. So they they were all published before me. Um, hmm. And I remember the just feeling at times, like, wow, why do you guys still read my stuff? I just... I I don't know why. I, I wasn't breaking through. I just kept getting rejected, or rejected. and rejected. I would close. I came close. two too big. Two of so my just came close at a big publishing house. Couldn't get through marketing. Again, it was for freezer to right? And it was honestly it was, it was just really discouraging. But then my book broke out. But, you know, I really credit that for keeping it going for contributing to the love book. Like, they they critiqued it at one point. they got rejected at turned 26 blah blah like basically picking up put me back on my feet that's to me off. because us look at your mask let's look at your mask to figure out what needs to get fixed here and you yeah, know, the rest is the so my writing group is really i think i give them all the credit for keeping me going and now there's just you know with as the book was coming out the asian American community really came around the bank they're excited sure. for their expectation they want to make what's straight it. It's the movie is creating a lot of new got stars that will have long careers in oil and boy women and talent behind the camera, as well as with every camera, they, all of them. I want them to go on and do like great things. So that is the network for community as well. And, you know, since that the book came out, I've just been meeting thousands of people who offered to support. And I am just so grateful every day for all of them.
0: Yeah. And it's definitely a very explicit feeling when people send you messages, they send you how the book has changed their life or what they really enjoyed about the book, how relatable it was. I think the relatable part would really uh, resonate with you. And, and for me, uh, when Corey tells me that, hey, I to this episode and I think she really made it with me, I think that's, that's the one ultimate goal that can that feel all that work that you did is, is like getting the culmination, right? So I I can imagine how great it is to to get stuck out of validation and uh, those best wishes from people. And Joe really drove this very important point of not discounting on that immediate circle that you have, right? In terms of like always having a trusted set of people around you, and those writing exercises was excellent because most often when it comes to managing things and getting started with the first few steps to pursuing something, people discount heavily on those practices and principles that you have to go with. So I think this writing practice sounds like it gave you that momentum to write longer and more by just starting to write with a couple of pages every day and having this circle around you to support you. And yeah, I remember reading about this circle in uh, Deborah's book, where she was mentioning about how this circle was definitely, you know, pushing you to pursue a writing career full time. So I have a follow-up question here, Abigail. So for somebody who's like budding, let's say we know a lot of people who are in the tech space and who enjoy tech as much as they can, but they also are, let's say, questioning some sort of a creative talent we have inside them, which is either to paint or to write or, you know, other other forms. So for them to find that sort of a crowd or that inner circle to trust on, what some steps that you would suggest from your experiences? Things like reaching out and so... Do you have any such arc there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I would say you're totally not alone. I remember when I, I spoke at a lot of tech companies, um, you know, with each book launch, and I, I will do it again with the film launch and with the, the third book launch. And I remember actually a lot of women came to me like, "Were you were you embarrassed to say that you're working on a, a romance novel? Right? Did that make people respect you less?" And it's actually not a romance novel, first of all; it's a romantic comedy. But I said, you know, initially, yes, I was a little worried that, and there were some people probably who were like what are you doing? But, you know, to be honest, a lot of people came out of the woodwork when they found out I was writing a novel. And a lot of men came out of the woodwork saying, I'm secretly writing a novel too. And Mm. how do you get published? Right. So I think when you are just being yourself and doing what you love, like that itself Mm. is like a steady source of presence and inspiration for people. Mm. In terms of like finding your tribe, I think you have to put yourself out there. You have to, like, as you said, you you ask someone, hey, will you exchange 15 pages with me? If they're full, like, because a lot of red people, like, you know, for me, I can't actually exchange 15 pages with most people anymore because I just have so many other things that I have, my like, critique partners. Mm-hmm. But, like, mm-hmm. if they're also, if you find people who are kind of in a similar stage as you and you put yourself out there, you exchange work, if, and you kind of give it a time limit, like, let's, let's just do 15 pages. So it's, it's a low commitment. And you find that, do you resonate with their comments and vice versa? Like, do you like their writing? Do you resonate with, like, the themes and the, the goals that they have? And mm-hmm. when, they, when agents tell you that this is subjective business and when they're, you know, sending me the rejection letter, it's so true. It's really subjective. Like, you just think for yourself, like, you and your friends probably have similar tastes, but you probably disagree on some of these. Like, you know, your friend might love one song and you hate it. And they love a certain, you know, like, maybe and you hate it. and And that's fine. Like, we could, that's, like, why we have a diversity of, a film you know and, and books and stuff and so that's the same thing with agents and reps like they have their loves and bis- dislikes and you just have to find the right people that fit what you're trying to do and that does take a long time i would say it could be probably you know five to ten years to build my mm. community of people and i continue to build it now in hollywood with like new creative partners in different mediums so now i'm you know, talking with both and animators and and again it takes time mm. just to Like you meet like 10 people and you find maybe one person that you have chemistry with. I remember one of my mentors who Mm -hmm. is a very, you know, a strong leader in um, Hollywood and tech. She said like, and it's even harder if you're a weird, strong woman to find that first, those people that you connect, when you do connect with them, it's like super strong, right? It's just like you hang on to each other.
0: Yeah, I know. Very true. And uh, I, I can totally support that. It's like spending so many years to find that one good connection. And you would like completely lean on to this person because the amount of time it took is, is equivalent to the trust and uh, sort mm-hmm. of the equation that gets built with both of you. So I think that's very important. And uh, uh, what you mentioned also is is like this uh, point that most of them don't realize, right? Because they're not always in it for the term. So I was like, yeah, I want to do things, but I also want it tomorrow. And I want the outcome to show mm-hmm. up tomorrow. So uh, uh, for the longer game, I think both relationships and the skill in itself that you're pursuing grows and ages as you spend more time with it, make it sort of a habit. So, uh, I think, yeah, that's, that's a very good point that you made in terms of finding the right set of people who are at the same level as you and not be shy enough to be vulnerable, right? Because, uh, like you said, my agent does not accept this. So, what's the best way to deal with this? Do I write more? Do I write it this way? Is my style okay? So, I think a lot of these get cleared when you talk to People who are peers and people who are also traveling the same journey that you're on. So yeah, very very absolutely. Yeah. yeah, awesome. So I think now that we're getting a hang of what starting a career and what establishing a, a space in media, that's like let's shift ideas to AI because I, I know that you've been involved with AI for more than a decade. So overseeing the emerging AI tech, I for you've also worked with AI partnerships. And I know you've also been a fellow podcaster in the AI space. So there's so many things along with also doing a little bit of venture capital work in this space. So how would you see current founders who are trying to build in the LLM space? What would you suggest as a structure or a pattern for them that they need to consider before on when they start building out with AI? Because, you know, now everybody wants to build with AI. It's something like the shiny thing that people all want to go after. So what's even the practical thing to consider and what would you always thought because you've had such a vast experience from all of these spaces, right? Yeah, well, you know, I
2: I had Andrew Ng on my podcast who is considered one of the godfathers of deep learning. And, you know, he said that he actually very early on in his career on AI, he and his friends tried to challenge each other to think of an industry that would not be affected by AI. And (laughs) initially thought, well, maybe haircuts, like, you know, you, you still need to go to the barber and get your hair physically snipped. But even then you could apply AI to the appointment system or you know, like invoicing or something, right? Like there's there's lots of or you know, there's lots of ways that every industry can be improved by AI. And so I think like really the first step is just to figure out how would AI impact my industry. And part of that is just be familiar with one of the tools out there. It's true. Like I'm I'm kind of shocked actually by how much AI generation has just suddenly taken off. Like I I wrote my I wrote a novel about AI generation in 2015 and it, you know, it's like so timely now. I'm, I pulled it out and I do other things with it now. Yeah. But I think with chat GPT, everyone is just like, it's all the rage now. And there's just, there's more coming. And I do think it's actually finally catching on. But for Inno, and I think that a lot of people can, can get involved. It is accessible now where they can think about like, how do I apply, right? Apply mm. AI to the particular field that I'm in. So I think that's that's the easy starting point. Even people that are very tech savvy, are thinking, of, "How do I apply this to like creating, you know, better products or or streamlining my my workflow or my pipeline?" There's a lot of savings, cost savings that can mm. be exploited that we're just beginning to to touch.
0: Right. So I think yeah, it comes back to fundamentals, right? Like, what's the best thing you can do here, and how does this apply? Whatever your existing stack is, or whatever problem you know, you're already solving for, and that's like. Um, I, I think you you really have to go back to uh, what you wrote back then because um, whatever I think we would have dreamt or imagined is is already happening at a 10 x scale right now and it's it's only going to get more better and I would say like more scarier also in the next couple of years it's like so it's like something super interesting just unfolding in your friend of your eyes right so um, uh, it's amazing and for the listeners Abigail writes excellent stories that are like. Yeah. combining tech and humor and I think the fact that she's reading her books is like super tech savvy and we just had like a crypto conversation just before you know starting this podcast and I think uh, I'm like oh wow that's like super cool so I think I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, her next book is again going to be based on AI stuff and uh, this time I, I would probably say more like generative AI and how a lot of NFTs and stuff would be involved so yeah.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. So my my second novel, which I think you're referring to, is so it's it's one of the low book books. It's companionable called Love Boat Reunion. And Sophie Ha, who is my crazy like boy crazy girl in book one, has doubled down on becoming like the best CS student at Dartmouth mm. seen. She's kind of swung in the other direction, just sworn off boys, and she is actually a girl in tech. She's a girl in AI, where she's trying to create this fashion AI app. Anyone can work in AI, including this very girly girl who's actually brilliant, and she just needs to come into her own and you know. It'd be free to be herself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I love how you're combining these multiple uh, stories together, right? In terms of since you've this background in tech, it's kind of giving you that leverage to visualize what it means to pursue a career in tech. And also at the same time, imagine what would it be to give other layers to this character and, uh, and kind of bring everything together in one picture. So I think that's, that's the most interesting part. And to me, I think characterization is very important. Uh, as we go into original writing, I think giving those depths to the, carrier, the characters are very important. And I'm actually glad that you're able to do that with uh, your experiences in tech. Awesome. So um, now that we're talking about AI and uh, the way that um, founders would be evaluating and seeing what's the best thing to build, there's also currently, I think, Two two kinds of AI that we can look into, right? One is the infrastructure level where different companies are figuring out how to build apps, how to build on top of whatever the current stack is. And there's also like the consumerization of AI where we as consumers use those applications and uh, we play around and see what's the best way we can gain more knowledge in this space. So, with a lot of data that's being involved both at the company side and at consumer side, what are the steps to ensure fairness, transparency, and accountability? Because I think tech ethics is going to be the hottest topic ever. It's always been though, and I I can see it yeah, continuing to be one of the main things of focus going forward. Because we it's, it's like how ads used to be at one point in time, right? It kind of like gave in all the data, and we became the reason that ads started growing. So I I can see the same thing with AI because. There's a lot of data being involved. So what's your take on how to maintain the ethics and transparency? Yeah, this is a really
2: important question. You're right. I do a lot of speaking on AI and ethics. And I think I think it's everyone's responsibility. Everyone working in the field, everyone who's being touched by AI to speak up. They have to speak up about their experiences. It's, you know, it is but like you, there are like AI ethics boards that are created at companies, um, but you can't outsource the responsibility because a lot of times they're, by the time they get involved, the technology has already been built. So it's really that people on the ground building, designing, like it has to be ethical by design from the, from the get-go. And it's the responsibility of those line, those kind of frontline engineers to surface problems, if they come up. And how is it that you identify these problems? I think the key is we need a diverse group of people working on it, because if you're all coming from the same background, we will notice things that are different. I'll give some real life examples, but this is, you know, this is important importance of why you want to have people who can say, Hey this facial recognition technology does not work on my darker skin.
0: You mm-hmm. actually need someone
2: to be able to say that. And you know, here's an example from the real world that's not AI related, but I remember when I was a young associate at a law firm, mm-hmm. we were all given $1,000 a year to spend on business development. And I remember at one point, there was a kind of the, I don't, I'm not sure his role, I think it's kind of like an office manager, but he said to me, he's like, well, I see that you're spending your $1,000 on baby shower gifts what do baby shower gifts have to do with business development? And I was actually really shocked. I'm like, well, I gave these baby shower gifts to women who are like really ambitious and smart and they're going back to work. It's not like, you know, but he could, could not fathom like in his world that did not fit into business development. He thought business development was like ball game tickets mm-hmm. or, you know, nights out at the park and getting fears, right? And no, baby shower gifts these are actually business development. And like, it's true, like today, these women are still like out there. They're like managing partners, they're, they're deal makers, you know, and, and that's an example where you just have to, you have to educate along the way. So you have to, if you're, if you're like, if you've only, if you are like a developer, you've only seen like one world, you need to bring outside input in. Um, And there are a number of nonprofit organizations that are doing really great work in this space. And so if you don't have that diversity on your team, first, you should go get it. But second, you can also, you can also ask for input from places like the partnership on AI is doing really great work. Mm -hmm. A lot of, Companies now have like fairness and AI groups that are doing interesting research. Um, So, you know, give people a voice, seek out input, get yourself educated, have, have AI ethics be, if you can find a business tie in like a reason, and there is, right. Like if you build it right, like find, find the profit tie in for these things because that, I think if you have our incentives aligned to try to build and, and design the most ethical products, mm. then it will, it will naturally come. But if, if the incentives are created on, you know, created by the leadership are, are not conducive to that, then it's harder mm. right. For those, those ranked by engineers to speak up. So like, so yeah. So I think the bottom line again is everyone is responsible for the pipeline of AI technology as it's developed, deployed mm. and used. Mm.
0: Absolutely. So, and. I think a lot of times, uh, this responsibility from everyone's side is always caught in a very single-handed way, right? It's always thought about as, okay, so what's the best thing we can do with the algorithm? What's the thing that we can fine-tune in the tech part of it so that this, this works? But a lot of what we just discussed about is, is more like cognitive bias that, that people, uh, we as people have. A lot of times, it's psychology-driven more than it's technology-driven. And uh, as much as tech cuts on one side, I think, a lot of this psychological biases, I I remember how there was a time, that just, just very coincidentally, to what you mentioned, there was a time that the resume picker used to leave out all the women resumes and always like the men resumes for certain roles. And that was, was again, yeah, like yeah. There was driven. a big headline. Yes, yes, that was a yes, big headline. Exactly. And I think that was the time that this calling out happened where everybody came together and sort of called the bias out and said, you know, something wrong is happening. And this was at a multinational company that was like having a separate diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. and team and, you know, folks, Yeah, they're being responsible for it. So as much as I think, uh, uh, very importantly, well, how you said it, as much as it's important to grow tech, it's also important to understand that as each person's biases and acts, each person's truths come together, it's, it's very important to see what's not really okay and what's not something that can just be Passed on as okay. This just goes here. It's fine. I think it's important to call those things out, and and that's like the first step towards getting it fair. So yeah, mm-hmm. on 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 that would
2: be. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, cool. So now going a bit more into what we were discussing as AI has just transformed everything. So since you work in the creative media space, I've just got like a fun game for you. So let's say creative media industry meets AI. What are the top ideas that bounces off your mind? Like, what would shift creative storytelling or film production or writing books and scripts, which is something that you do often these days? So, what are some top ideas that bounces off? Yeah, well, as, as you may know,
1: it's
2: a really hot topic right now. It's one of the key points of negotiation with the writers' guild strike. Mm. I think there's definitely concerns about copyright violations, and you know what. What is the future? I think I mean, this is, is very, it's not uncommon to see this whenever there's a big technological shift and AI has a huge technological shift. And I, I think my message to creatives is like, what AI does is the stuff that's not creative, right? And I think everyone understands that AI is going to replace a rote work. AI mm-hmm. cannot replace the creative work. So it's actually really important for creatives to get on top of this. Like they should understand these tools. They should weaponize themselves with these tools, not in the sense of like world annihilation, weaponizing, making themselves stronger and better and faster and more efficient at what they already do and what only they can do. And I really think that that is so important because it is true that AI is is taking over a lot of jobs that, that will go away. Like we no longer have elevator operators Mm -hmm. there's there's, you know I I still like I think of a story from Grapes of Wrath that I read in high school I think it was Grapes of Wrath where the young man stood and defied the combine that was coming to harvest right because it was taking the jobs of the harvesters and there Mm was eventually there's this gruesome scene where he he's able to stop it the first time because it's driven by people but the second time it's driven only it's an it's fully automated machine and then it mows Mm -hmm. down and he dies right and I remember just Mm -hmm. being really horrified and struck by this story but the point was like he was standing against a tide that could not be stopped. And I think mm. that's where we are with AI. Like it's, it's the, the cat is out of the bag. Um, and it's really important for us to kind of keep up and get ahead of it. Understand like how, how is the world shifting around us and how can we be the ones mm. taking leadership, especially, you know, the creatives, I think see the world more clearly um, mm. because that's the, kind of the lens that we bring our lens, our, kind of our close read to a lot of things. And like, with that clarity of vision, like we should be taking the lead on the use of this very powerful technology.
0: Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And has AI been very helpful for you in any of these front? Because I think what you mentioned is, is uh, right, in terms of replacing those works because now your entire time can go into focusing on what's the best way to get creativity out and what what are different methods to get your skin upfront. So have you used AI in some of your creative pursuits in the recent times and where it's it's going to. It's interesting, so I'm actually working on some, I'm just
2: starting out with a a film short that -hmm. has an animation portion to it. So I'm playing around with Runway.ai, which was used in everything, everywhere. I have just started to play with it, but one thing I was able to do was take different images it into runway.ai and have it interpolate like what was it what does the video look like using these four different images and the four images were actually all like there were different points on a time like time lapse of a painting being drawn and it actually filled in all the gaps of like you know wow oh, wow the painting so um for me yeah, i'm using it for pre-visualizations because pre-visualizations there it's just for my benefit so i can think about like okay what would this world look like and you know i i will i, I do i have Live illustrators and animators that are are getting hired onto the projects, but it helps to helps us to work more efficiently. Like, okay, yeah, this work, this work, and just kind of gives us a common language to use. But Mm -hmm. the quality is definitely not the quality. It's not production quality by any means. It's not even like as good as like a regular prefix would be. But for my kind of quick and dirty sketching, it works just great.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like how people call the whole MVP thing with respect to product building, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the first step you do to understand if it's really working, if it's something that uh, the minimum level of getting users to use it. And I think then you get Mm -hmm. full going with the product. So I think I see that as a similar way as well. And since you mentioned about Runway, Runway is one of my favorite AI teams as well. I love putting things out. And and as in Nock, you talk about how you visualize video. I think I do a very similar thing with imaging. I try to put image, like I try to put one image, and I try to like extrapolate the image and do infinite imaging, okay. see how the image can look like from multiple dimensions, and sort of do cityscaping. So it's it's super fun to play around with, and especially for a creative person, I I can't emphasize enough as how you mentioned in terms of uh, it helps you see broader perspectives. It helps you see, oh wow, that's like a different thing to think about, and let me like go and discuss that with my illustrator, or let me go think more on that. I think. It gives you so many levels to put your thoughts on. So yeah, definitely, absolutely, different.
2: yeah. And there's another yeah. tool that I think everyone's using. I believe it's a Google Photo tool where it will remove background people from an image. So you know, I I took photos in Vienna where I'm I'm you know currently speaking to you from Vienna, Austria, over the holidays, and there were like all these background people, and you can actually just push them, tap on the images, and yes, <laughs> the phone knows what that background scene looks like. It's been photographed <laughs> so much that it could just fill it in. So you know, it's like little things like that. Those are all AI tools, but, you know, and we really, we think nothing of them. They just, they make, they make the creative's life easier.
0: Totally, totally. And I think as podcasters ourselves, we would know how much AI helps with editing stuff out and, yeah, fine-tuning wise and sort of doing all of those nitty really post-production works. And those areas, I definitely see it's boasting creativity, if not anything. And whenever somebody brings to me in terms of, okay, AI is just what it is, I think it's it's just like another whole a dystopian kind of a thinking or another world to totally go into because yeah like we do see the upfronts of how AI could help us in a lot of ways that we are self-functioning. So yeah, for sure. Awesome. So let's go back to what we were discussing every year your book writing and how mm-hmm. you combine these different layers of tech into fine-tuning your characters, your storylines, and kind of sort of my like giving you um, so much of a jump from one interest to another interest. So uh, what's this lens of storytelling that you're moved? with? Like, was this kind of a tech-driven storytelling very intended? Is is that something that you think is more like your unique voice? And what would you tell creative people who are just putting your skills to do to find their own voice to get into creative life? Yeah,
2: no, I think you've really hit it on the head. Like everyone should write what they know, and I think that's really true. And I think you, you can write what you can research, which is also what you know, if what what interests you. That is really, I think, what I love is when people find that unique contribution that they will make mm-hmm. to, you know, the world. Like, what is it? What is the story that only you can tell? What is the voice that only you bring to the table, and no one can replace that. Definitely not AI. So for me, I just happen to enjoy technology. I remember when I went to Harvard, I came from Ohio where I just, you know, I didn't really get exposed to technology that much. I remember there was like the one guy who would be on the internet. I was like, what's that, right? This is 1995. I graduated from high school. And then I went to Harvard and there were all these people who were like working at Microsoft and Netscape at the time, right? And I was fascinated by it. I'm like, that's just so cool. I didn't know people my age could do this stuff. <laughs> and so I think I've always just had this fascination with tech. And when I worked, even when I worked in the government, I worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee. We, I was there when they held the Microsoft AOL, sorry, it was the AOL Time Warner merger hearing, right? And like, I was so excited about Time Warner, this very old media company purchasing AOL, this hot new startup, which is, you know, it it wasn't a startup and it was large then, but it was just like a really exciting space where just a lot of innovations were happening. A lot of really bright people were moving into it. So I think as I just grew up in that space in my career, it just naturally found its way into my stories, especially um, girls in tech. But also, I, I think there's so many fun, I love puzzles, like, so that, that also finds its way into my mm-hmm. stories, like, characters who are good with puzzles, who are good with solving the problems, and all that goes into the same skills that go into the end with software engineer or someone who you know, builds algorithms.
0: And yeah. So- yeah. And no wonder, I think, some of those, like, really hit it off well with screenplays and film introducing projects as well, because... It's like how tech doesn't stop with your storytelling, right? And all, all forms of storytelling can enact this. And for me, what's more heartening about this is a lot of people who think tech is very, very traditional, right? When you just come into tech, it's a lot to do with, okay, I'm just going to like code. And I think that's the only path out there. And uh, with every decade, we had different forms of roles and different forms of tech jobs being created. And it, it's so satisfying to see how can go beyond just working in tech, but into stories like these, which will last for a lifetime. And this is like read by teens and young adults. And I think it sort of gives them a, a way to look at tech from a very different lens and sort of like induce or inculcate this desire in them to work for tech. So I think what you're doing is really amazing with respect. I, I see so much potential with how this can impact on good careers Can help people really fall in love with tech. So... Well, no, I'm glad. I hope so. <laughs> Absolutely. So your audience, definitely will like a full curve though, Abiga, because I think from working with tech folks that you've had with all your Intel and partnerships, AI, and and then working with founders, with venture capital, and now you're working, literally, literally working with young adults and team. So what influence was there from all of these different facets of audiences? And uh, did you have interesting learnings at each uh, phase? yeah so you know i i don't i think i've worked with young people my whole life i
2: remember when i had kids in a show it was really intimidating like i don't know how to i don't know how to like manage children i know how to talk to college students or you know young adults um mm-hmm. so i i think it's always just been a sweet spot for me so my my writing is for young adults but you know on the other hand my books are read from people ages 13 to 90 i love the story like the sixty year old girl reading my book Tampere, with her 90 year old grandmother and you know I remember a 50-year-old woman interviewed me. She said, "What well, I love your book so much, even as a young adult. I'm like, well, young adult's actually misnamed. Young adult today is actually what I think adult was when I was growing up in middle grade, like a wrinkle in time. was middle grade, but now would be, as i was was a young adult, but back then but now would be considered middle grade. So part mm. of it's just, it's just a misnomer. But I do love Gems in you. Like I've connected so many Gems you, um, through the books and I love I love their passion. I love what they stand for. I love that they, they've grown up in a world where they just, they don't put up with anything. And I awesome. i feel like I'm encouraged by that.
0: Yep. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. That's thats so good to know. And uh, I think as a mother, it definitely like gets you to relate more with this audience at, at this present point in time, because you have more like a live reality that's running along with you and you're like, okay, oh, yeah. so I, it's like an experiment that I can vote. So... It's, it's so good to see so many factors coming together, Abigail. And uh, thank you so much for being here today, for sharing a lot of these points in tech, in uh, storytelling, in art and media. And like I said, I think the good around for me to get back to the beginning of what we spoke about is how there's so much possibility you try to bring in with your career. And uh, from the time that I read about you on depth book to actually talking to you right now, I think it's so surreal to just see how many different directions your career could take you through and yours is like the excellent example that from weekend well thank you so much for being here and sharing all your stories with us
2: well thank you so much for having me I really enjoyed our conversation so be well and, and good luck to everyone awesome thank you